0: This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC, points through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. Thyroid and parathyroid tumors. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jingjing Mao.
1: Seaweed has been used in Chinese medicine to treat thyroid swelling, now known as goiter, since 2700 BCE. But. Although early healers knew of the existence of glands in the neck, their understanding was very rudimentary, and when they were detected, they were often thought to be pathologic. Early Roman thinker Pliny the Elder postulated that only men and swine are subject to swellings of the throat, which are mostly caused by noxious quality of the water they drink. It wasn't understood that the thyroid gland was a normal anatomical organ until the Renaissance period, when human dissection allowed for greater understanding of human anatomy and physiology. In the 10th century Common Era, Al Zarari, known as Al bu- uh, from the Arab Andalusian physician, pioneered a variety of surgeries, but he was the, also the first to describe thyroidectomy. In the early days, There was poor understanding of thyroid and parathyroid gland hormonal functions and thyroidectomies were largely fatal, either immediately postoperatively or subsequently due to myxedema coma. In 1909, Swiss physician Theodore Kosher won the Nobel Prize for developing safer techniques for removing the thyroid, bringing down the thyroidectomy mortality rate to less than 1%. Now, thyroidectomies are primarily used to treat thyroid cancers. To discuss thyroid and parathyroid tumors and their workup and treatment, I have with me today one of Ohio State University's experts, Dr. Priya Dedia. Dr. Dedia is an assistant professor of surgical oncology and specializes in endocrine surgeries. Priya, welcome to MedNet. Thanks, Dr. Mel. Now, Priya, it seems like a lot of patients have thyroid nodules and tumors, but what percentage of these are actually cancerous? That's a really important question. I think uh, it's very important to know
2: this because that's why we wanna work up thyroid nodules. So 17 to 16% in recent studies have been found to be malignant.
1: Okay, thanks Priya. As a reminder, you can send us your questions and suggestions using the ask a question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast player. Don't forget to check out our other programs available on our website at ccme.osu.edu or by podcast under MedNet 21 CME on your podcast app. Now let's hear from our guest, Priya. Thank you so much,
2: Dr. Mao. So I have no disclosures, and today I'm going to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which are thyroid nodules and thyroid cancers, as well as parathyroid uh, tumors, such as primary hyperparathyroidism. The agenda for today, we'll start out by talking about thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer, and we'll focus on imaging for thyroid nodules, We'll talk about indications for FNA biopsy for thyroid nodules, and we'll talk about some of the common FNA results and what to do with those results, and then we'll talk about extent of surgery for differentiated thyroid cancer. Then we'll switch gears a little bit and talk about primary hyperparathyroidism. We'll talk about the definition of asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism and how our NIH guidelines might be missing some, some aspects of primary hyperparathyroidism Then we'll talk about indications for parathyroidectomy as well as some of the benefits from parathyroidectomy. So I'd like to start out by talking about a patient that I frequently see in the clinic. So this was a patient that was found to have an incidental possible thyroid nodule on a CT scan. So what do we do with this patient? So let's take a step back for a moment and think about thyroid nodules. First of all, thyroid nodules are really common. So it's pretty likely that you're gonna see at some point a patient that has a thyroid nodule incidentally Um, or that you might find by history and physical exam as well. Um, As you can see, 30 to 70 percent of of, uh, the prevalence of thyroid nodules is about 30 to 70 percent, so one of the highest for endocrine disorders in general. The most important thing about thyroid nodules is understanding which nodules have cancer in them, and up to about 15 percent of them can have thyroid nodules based on some of these studies. So the biggest question is, which thyroid nodules do we resect, because we really want to focus on the cancer-related ones um, in, in terms of resection. So in order to evaluate a patient that might have a thyroid nodule, so for example, that patient that comes in with a possible thyroid nodule on CT scan, what we want to start out with is the history and the physical exam to see if there are any palpable thyroid nodules, and then we want to get a TSH as well. If the TSH is low, this suggests that there might be hyperthyroidism. So in that case, we want to progress by getting a thyroid uptake scan as well as a free T3 and a free T4. If that turns out to be a functioning nodule, then we can can refer to an endocrinologist. If, on the other hand, the nodule is non-functioning or cold or warm, then we would treat this just as we would Uh, a patient that has a thyroid nodule with a high or a normal TSH. And so we would do that by getting an ultrasound. This ultrasound will help us decide which nodules need to be biopsied. So in general, nodules that are about one to two centimeters and have certain characteristics are gonna be biopsied uh, through FNA, whereas nodules that are less than one centimeters, we're gonna repeat the ultrasound in about six to four months, uh, six to 24 months, depending on the characteristics of those nodules. So a little more background about thyroid nodules, so if we look by palpation, there are about only 5% of nodules that are prevalent in the general population. This goes up pretty significantly to 67% when we look by ultrasound. And you may also remember that, that thyroid nodules tend to increase with age, they're also more common in female, uh, with female sex, and then with iodine deficiency and radiation exposure. And so because of all of these and the fact that thyroid nodules are so common and that we miss a lot of thyroid nodules by physical exam alone, the American Thyroid Association recommends sonography or ultrasound for all patients that have known or suspected thyroid nodules. And there's strong uh, and high quality evidence for this. So for that patient that was found to have a possible thyroid nodule on a CT scan, we should get a TSH and an ultrasound. So to evaluate a new thyroid nodule, there are the most important type of imaging modality, as I've alluded to, is ultrasound. It's the most useful test, and for most patients with thyroid nodules, it's really the only imaging test that you'll need. Thyroid scintigraphy can be performed, but this is really only reserved for patients that have a hyperthyroid workup, so patients with that low TSH and might have hyperthyroidism. Sometimes we want to think about a CT scan, but this is rarely indicated for most patients. So the patients that we can think about where we might need a CT scan is if they may have substernal extension, which and so the borders of their thyroid are not seen on the ultrasound, or if they have extensive nodal disease, or if we're suspicious for medullary thyroid cancer or anaplastic thyroid cancer. And I'm not really going to talk about that too much in this talk uh, because uh, of time limitations. So on the thyroid ultrasound, for the nodule, we want to focus on the size, the location, the composition, echogenicity, the margins, whether there are calcifications present or not, and if it's taller, taller than wide, which would be more concerning for a malignancy, or if there's an increase in vascularity, which would also be con- uh, concerning for a malignancy. In addition to looking at the nodule characteristics uh, alone, it's also important to look at the lymph nodes and to see if the lymph nodes are normal or not. Looking at the lymph nodes can really help us understand if a well-differentiated thyroid cancer, such as papillary thyroid cancer, is present. For the lymph nodes, we want to look at size and shape, as well as loss of the normal fatty hilum, which would be, again, suggestive of malignancy, Calcifications are also suggestive of a malignancy. And then we want to look at echogenicity as well. So the big question is, well, which nodules should we biopsy? This was initially a much more difficult conversation. But now we have some guidelines to help us with this. And so the guidelines are really based on the fact that with increasing malignancy, there's an, increase in, uh, there's an increased risk of malignancy when the nodule gets bigger. So based on this, as well as other characteristics on ultrasound, the ATA ATA has a risk stratification system that can be used for determining which nodules to biopsy. In addition to that, that, the American College of Radiology also has a risk stratification system, which is called the TIRAD system. So I'm going to talk a little bit about both of these systems. So with the American Thyroid Association risk stratification system for thyroid nodules, uh, basically the way that we look at thyroid nodules is through a patterns of recognition. So for simple cysts, for example, those are going to be very, very low risk of malignancy. However, on the other hand, when a nodule is hypoechoic with irregular margins and microcalcifications, uh, that's going to be a very high concern for malignancy. So as the nodules become more suspicious, then our threshold for biopsying the nodule also is less. So we're more likely, so we want to biopsy nodules as they become more suspicious when they're smaller. And this really helps prevent the cancer from getting larger if it is a cancer. The American College of Radiology has a similar system, but instead of using patterns of recognition, there's a point system. And so for this, there are different aspects of the point system. So for example, uh, composition, echogenicity, shape, margin, and echogenic foci. And for these different categories, there's a point value that's associated with those characteristics. And then this point system, the more points that are there, the smaller nodule would be biopsied. So it's kind of similar to the American Thyroid Association system um, in that the more suspicious the nodule is, and this is based on a point system, the more likely you are to biopsy the nodule, even though it's a smaller size. So both of these risk stratification systems reduce unnecessary biopsies. So really, Either one of these are appropriate to use. If your institution uses either of these, they're very, very similar, uh, and there's a high concordance rate for classifying nodules as intermediate or high suspicion when we use either of these systems. So, again, it's, it's fine to use either the American Thyroid Association system or the TYRADS risk stratification system. So now, what about multiple nodules? So I often see patients where they have multiple nodules, but only one nodule is biopsied. So let's talk about this in more detail for a moment. So if we look at a study where, that looked at uh, almost 2,000 patients where over 3,000 nodules were biopsied, when they When only the largest nodule was biopsied, when a patient had two nodules, this missed almost 14% of the cancers. And at four nodules, this missed almost half of the nodules, so 45% were missed. So really important, an important thing that I want to convey is that when patients have multiple nodules, all nodules that meet those FNA biopsy criteria should be biopsied. And that will really decrease the chance of missing a, a thyroid cancer. There are some other considerations for performing an FNA as well, and these aren't quite as well discussed in terms of our guidelines uh, for FNA biopsies. So some of the things that I like to think about are concerning clinical features. I'm not going to go through all of the data for this because of lack of time, but some things that you can think about. So if a patient has hoarseness or family history, there may be a lower threshold for performing an FNA rather than the strict cutoffs of the American Thyroid Association or the TYRADS system. Um, In addition, if a nodule is pet-avid, or if the patient is very young, then there might be a lower threshold to biopsy the thyroid nodule as well. Uh, Some reasons to think about a higher threshold for biopsying a thyroid nodule might be if a patient is very old, Uh, and the thyroid nodule doesn't really have a lot of concerning clinical features. Um, In addition, if the patient has significant comorbidities and the management of a potential cancerous or other type of thyroid nodule is not going to be possible because the patient may not be able to tolerate surgery, then it may also not be necessary to FNA biopsy that thyroid nodule. So what do we do with thyroid nodules that we don't biopsy? So these, we can't unfortunately just let them go unless they are very, very low suspicion. So in the event of a high suspicion thyroid nodule, I usually like to ultrasound these in 6 to 12 months. So the more concerned I am about the nodule, the shorter time frame I'll ultrasound those nodules. Um, If the nodule is is of low suspicion or intermediate suspicion, then 12 to 24 months is reasonable for a repeat ultrasound. And if the patient has a very low suspicion thyroid nodule, so something like a cyst, then we can consider 24 months if we even need to do a follow-up ultrasound. So now, if we decide to go down the path of an FNA biopsy, so you have a patient that meets criteria for an FNA biopsy, well, what do we do with those results? So the the possible results include a non-diagnostic or unsatisfactory FNA result benign result or there can be indeterminate results so that includes atypia of undetermined significance or a follicular lesion of undetermined significance as well as a follicular neoplasm or suspicious for a follicular neoplasm um, and then suspicious for malignancy. And then of course there's the diagnosis of malignancy Uh, and all of these cytology results They help us stratify the management for the patient by giving us an estimate of the risk of malignancy. It's important to understand, though, that this risk of malignancy can vary by institution. So sometimes management of the cytology results can be institution-dependent if your rate of malignancy is very high or very low, for example, for indeterminate nodules. So now what do we do with an FNA that has a non-diagnostic result? So this means that no interpretation can be made. So, if you, so you can see the image on the right-hand side. There's a hypocellular specimen, so there are no thyroid cells on this specimen. So really it's very difficult to determine if this is benign or not. Uh, and if this happens, then we would consider repeating the biopsy in about six to eight weeks. If there are several biopsies that are non-diagnostic, then at that point we would consider surgical excision. If the biopsy is benign, then if the patient has a highly suspicious ultrasound pattern, then we would want to repeat that ultrasound and, and consider doing a repeat FNA biopsy in about 6 to 12 months. If the ultrasound pattern, on the other hand, for a benign biopsy is low to intermediate suspicion, Then we can repeat the ultrasound in 12 to 24 months and then we would repeat the FNA biopsy if there's 20% growth in two dimensions or if there's a 50% increase in the nodule volume or development of newer suspicious ultrasound features. And then for a very low suspicion ultrasound pattern, we may not even need to repeat the ultrasound but if necessary or if there's any concern, then we, can in, then we can repeat the ultrasound in 24 months. And again, that would be something like a cyst or a small spongiform nodule. So uh, for an FNA biopsy that's benign and has had a second benign cytology result, we can then decrease our frequency of ultrasound monitoring to every three to five years. If the, module, if the nodule is growing, then we should really monitor it closely and consider surgery, especially if the nodule is large, the patient has compressive symptoms, or if there are other clinical concerns. So now let's talk a little bit about an indeterminate cytology result. So this is a, some of the most confusing cytology results because there's there's so many options for management. Um, so I'm going to talk about the two biggest options for management. First is molecular testing. So this has been a development over the past 15 years or so where for an indeterminate result we can send the specimen off for additional genomic and transcriptomic profiling in order to get a better estimate of the risk of malignancy. This is a reasonable option for the average patient if you have access to molecular testing which is not always available everywhere. Um, The other option is a diagnostic lobectomy, and this is really important to consider if your institution has a high malignancy rate for indeterminate FNA biopsies or if your institution doesn't have access to molecular testing. This is also a very reasonable thing to consider in a patient that has increased risk for malignancy, so someone that had head or neck radiation, for example, or has a PET positive uh, thyroid nodule, then you may want to go directly to a thyroid lobectomy instead of molecular testing. The two types of molecular tests that are available are Affirma and ThyroSeq, and previously they were quite different. Affirma used to be more of a rule-out test, and ThyroSeq used to be more of a rule-in test. But most of but these have become, uh, but the recent iterations of these are very very similar. So they essentially have the same output uh, and the same. The, the sensitivity and specificity of both AFIRMA and ThyroSeq are very, very similar now. Now, what if you have a patient with an FNA cytology of malignant or suspicious for malignancy? So, for these patients previously, we straight away recommended a lobectomy versus a total thyroidectomy based on the size. But now there is the, also the option of active surveillance, which is recommended. Um, or suggested by the American Thyroid Association when the the nodule is less than or equal to one centimeter or very low risk. The important thing about active surveillance is that the institution and the providers have to be comfortable with that as well as the patient. So this can be uh, something that's a little bit tricky to navigate. Um, In addition to active surveillance, the the surgical options are a lobectomy and total thyroidectomy. Previously, lobectomy was only recommended for smaller thyroid cancers, but the most recent American Thyroid Association guidelines suggest that a lobectomy and a total or a total thyroidectomy can be performed for any thyroid nodule that's less than four centimeters and has low-risk characteristics. And the reason for that, if you look at this graph on the right, it suggests that the The cumulative risk of death from either a total thyroidectomy or patients that had a lobectomy, and this is going out to 20 years, is essentially completely the same. So this is the big impetus for why the American Thyroid Association changed guidelines in order to to allow some patients to get a lobectomy instead of a total thyroidectomy. Also, if a patient needs a total thyroidectomy, the rationale for a nodal dissection is based on the ultrasound results. So if there are positive lymph nodes, then a total thyroidectomy and a lymph node dissection should be considered. So let's talk in a little bit more detail about the extent of surgery for well-differentiated thyroid cancer. So that includes papillary thyroid cancer and follicular thyroid cancer. Uh, So for these two types of thyroid cancers, Thyroid lobectomy can be performed if the nodule is less than four centimeters, if there's no evidence of extra-thyroidal extension, and if if there are no suspicious lymph nodes. A total thyroidectomy, or a completion thyroidectomy in the event that a lobectomy was performed initially, can be considered if the patient has a nodule that's over or equal to one centimeter, if the patient has a slightly aggressive histology, or vascular invasion, or a concerning mutation uh, as well. And then finally, a total thyroidectomy and central neck dissection can be performed when there are suspicious lymph nodes in the central or lateral neck, uh, or if there's aggressive histology and vascular invasion and concerning mutations. Now, you may look at this and say, wow, there seems like a lot of overlap. And that's actually on purpose. The American Thyroid Association did leave the room for, for the for different options with some of these characteristics in order to account for patient pre- preference and for provider comfort as well. Um, so in terms of a, a low-risk, well-differentiated thyroid cancer, uh, a lot of times a lobectomy is, suspicious, is sufficient, especially if that Uh, Nodule is less than 4 centimeters and doesn't have any concerning characteristics. And the other important thing is that radioactive iodine is not necessary for low-risk, well-differentiated thyroid cancer. On the other hand, for intermediate and high-risk, well-differentiated thyroid cancer, then a completion thyroidectomy should be considered and radioactive iodine should be considered as well. So now you may be thinking, well, why should we even perform a thyroid lobectomy? Why not just do a total thyroidectomy and get it over with and not have to worry about it? Well, there are several reasons for considering a thyroid lobectomy, and the reasons for this are that Patients that have a thyroid lobectomy may not need levothyroxine. So about 60% of patients may not need levothyroxine uh, if they have a thyroid lobectomy, whereas all patients who have a total thyroidectomy will need levothyroxine. And this can be very important for some patients who are not on any other medications. In addition to that, there is no risk of hypoparathyroidism with a thyroid lobectomy unlike a total thyroidectomy. And in addition, there have been recent studies that have suggested there's also an improved quality of life after surgery with a thyroid lobectomy compared to a total thyroidectomy. So I'm not going to go into the details, but you can see that there are some components of quality of life that are improved. There are some disadvantages, though, to a thyroid lobectomy, so it's important to consider this when discussing a patient th- uh, with a patient the options of a lobectomy versus a total thyroidectomy. So one obvious disadvantage is that if a lobectomy is performed and there are concerning features on the final pathology results, which may not always be obvious by ultrasound or uh, or even at the time of surgery, then that patient may need a potential completion thyroidectomy. So any patient that does not want to have a second operation, I will usually recommend that they have a total thyroidectomy as opposed to a lobectomy. The other thing that's important to consider, too, is that with a with a Thyroid lobectomy, it can be difficult to use laboratory surveillance. For example, using the thyroglobulin. So we're really limited to ultrasound surveillance for monitoring um, postoperatively after the cancer is resected. So that can be a consideration for some patients and providers as well that where a a total thyroidectomy may be better, a better option um, than a, a thyroid lobectomy. Now I'm just going to talk briefly about active surveillance um, because this is a relatively newer mode and people are starting to use it and actually I've had some patients ask for active surveillance as well. So I want to just go through some of the indications for consideration. So this, as of right now, this is only recommended for low risk papillary thyroid cancer for less than or equal to 1 centimeter or 10 millimeters. Um, The nodule should not have any high-risk features, so it should not be close to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. There should be no signs of invasion. There should be no signs of clinically apparent lymph nodes or distant metastases. In those situations, patients really should be recommended for surgery. Um, Also, it's important when thinking about active surveillance about when we want to turn to surgery even after we've started on the path of active surveillance. So once the tumor diameter reaches to 13 millimeters or 1.3 centimeters, then we really want to move in the direction of surgery. Also, if the patient develops lymph node metastases, then we we should Uh, consider surgery. And then there's always patient preference as well. So I've had some patients that are interested in active surveillance, but then over time, due to anxiety or other reasons, the patients prefer to go ahead with surgery, and this is a very reasonable option as well. Uh, Finally, the other thing that's very important to consider as well is that if the patient is having parathyroid surgery or thyroid surgery for some other reason, then we would want to go ahead with surgery for that cancerous thyroid nodule uh, in, in order to prevent a more difficult and incomplete operation in the future for the thyroid malignancy. So the take home points for this part of the talk are that lower thresholds for FNA in patients with a higher risk of thyroid cancer is reasonable. Um, uh, Otherwise, using the American Thyroid Association or TYRAD system is a good starting point for biopsies for FNA um, for thyroid nodules. It's also reasonable to consider foregoing FNA biopsies in patients that have significant comorbidities or poor prognosis, where, where we may not consider an operation or other types of management. And then finally, FNA cytopathology has a lot of variability, but that really dictates management. So it's important to understand uh, some of the institutional uh, results in terms of FNA cytopathology. And then the last thing is that we we should really consider less aggressive treatment of low-risk, well-differentiated thyroid cancer. So, for example, uh, thyroid lobectomy or even active surveillance should be considered for patients that are appropriate candidates for this. So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit to primary hyperparathyroidism. So just a little bit of background to start about uh, about the parathyroid glands and primary hyperparathyroidism. So primary hyperparathyroidism is caused when one or more of the parathyroid glands inappropriately makes parathyroid hormone. So if you look at the figure on the right, normally if there is low calcium, then this stimulates the parathyroid glands to release parathyroid hormone, and that acts on the kidney, the bones, and the intestine, all to increase calcium in the bloodstream. And this is a normal, this is a normal process. Um, primary hyperparathyroidism, on the other hand, dysregulates this process. Uh, it, the prevalence is about 1% in the general population, but it's a lot higher, almost double in postmenopausal women. But in general, primary hyperparathyroidism tends to be underdiagnosed and undertreated. The clinical diagnosis is based solely on labs, so hypercalcemia with elevated or inappropriately normal PTH, or normal calcemia with an elevated PTH, and I'll go through this in a little bit more detail in just a moment what I want to draw your attention to is that when the parathyroid hormone is increased, then this acts on, this can act on the other systems, the kidney, bones, and intestine, to then increase the calcium levels in the blood uh, as well. And that really leads to a lot of the effects of primary hyperparathyroidism. So there are four parathyroid glands, and in primary hyperparathyroidism, 85% of the disease is caused by a single adenoma, as you can see in the picture on the right. Um, However, about 15% can be caused by four-gland hyperplasia, and this will be important for some of the workup of primary hyperparathyroidism that I'll get to in a little bit. So first of all, let's talk about who should be tested. I think this is important because there tends to be underdiagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. So any patient that has hypercalcemia, osteoporosis, or kidney stones should be evaluated for primary hyperparathyroidism. And how should we do that? I think a good starting point is getting a calcium, a PTH, a 25 hydroxy vitamin D, and a creatinine, and looking at all of those labs together in order to get an understanding of whether that patient might be at risk for primary hyperparathyroidism. If there isn't enough information from those studies, then we can consider repeating those labs at a future time, or we can also get urine studies such as a 24-hour urine calcium, and I would also recommend that in addition to the urine calcium that we should get a urine creatinine as well because this can help with the, with the diagnosis. Uh, so in terms of the diagnosis, a high normal or a high or normal serum calcium, an inappropriate parathyroid hormone, which can be high or normal. Um, And then the absence of secondary causes, such as thiazide diuretics, lithium, chronic kidney disease, or vitamin D deficiency. Um, And to kind of go through this, the the one major thing that we really want to differentiate from primary hyperparathyroidism is FHH. Um, So in order to do that, we can look at whether the patient has had lifelong hypercalcemia. So if the patient has had a normal calcium at some point in their life, then it is impossible for that patient to have fhh Um, on the other hand if that patient has had high calciums for their entire life then we really have to rule out fhh and in order to do that the best test to rule out fhh is a 24-hour urine calcium and again i would recommend getting a creatinine with that so we can calculate the calcium clearance if the calcium clearance is high, so if it's greater than zero, uh, 0.02, then it is likely to be primary hyperparathyroidism. On the other hand, if it's less than 0.01, then it's more likely to be FHH. Um, so briefly, to I'll go through this in a bit more detail, but a high calcium, a, vir- a high PTH, a normal vitamin D, and a past normal calcium Means that that patient has primary hyperparathyroidism. So, in order, when sometimes though the diagnosis can be a little bit more confusing. So, um, let's go through this in a bit more detail. If the patient has hypercalcemia, osteoporosis, or kidney stones, then we want to get that calcium, PTH, vitamin D, and creatinine. And if the patient has a high calcium, a high PTH, and a normal vitamin D with a prior normal calcium, then it's going to be primary hyperparathyroidism. On the other hand, if we don't know if the patient has a prior normal calcium, then we would want to get a 24-hour urine study to calculate the, cal- the calcium clearance, and if the calcium clearance is high, it's primary hyperparathyroidism. If it's low, it's going to be FHH. On the other hand, if the calcium is high but you have a normal PTH and normal vitamin D, or if you have a normal calcium and a mildly elevated pth and a normal vitamin d then again the 24-hour urine test can be helpful in terms of distinguishing uh, different different causes of uh, slightly elevated calcium or pth if we have a normal calcium and a very high pth and a normal vitamin d then we want to rule out other causes of secondary hyperparathyroidism if we have no other causes of secondary hyperparathyroidism, so for example, renal disease um, or medications, then at that point we can say that that patient has normal calcemic primary hyperparathyroidism. On the other hand, if the patient has a normal calcium, a slightly high vitamin D, but a, uh, sorry, a slightly high PTH, but a low vitamin D, then in this situation I would consider repleting the vitamin D and rechecking in order to see if that patient has primary hyperparathyroidism or if this is just a normal response to the low vitamin D. The thing that I really want to emphasize is that imaging is not necessary for the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. This is a purely biochemical diagnosis and imaging like you can see right here like this ultrasound which shows a large parathyroid adenoma, that's only necessary for surgical planning. Um, and the important thing is that it's usually negative in gland hyperplasia. So it really doesn't need to uh, determine the decision for surgery. It's really only for surgical planning. So let's say you made the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. So what do you do next? So there are several options for patients. Observation is a very common uh, uh, option for patients with primary hyperparathyroidism, but I do wanna bring to your attention that there's about a 29 to 62% chance of progression at 10 years, um, and for these patients, we usually recommend hydration and normal calcium intake. There's also consideration of medical therapy, such as bisphosphonates, but I really wanna bring to your attention, and I'll show you this in a few moments, that even though it leads to increased bone mineral density, it also increases the risk for fractures. So now there's some evidence to not treat patients with primary hyperparathyroidism with bisphosphonates. Uh, Cinacalcet is another option to treat primary hyperparathyroidism, but, and even though this may improve hypercalcemia, it actually doesn't improve bone mineral density fracture risk or quality of life, and it may actually worsen kidney stones. And in addition to that, it's very expensive. So we tend to recommend to stay away from this if a patient can tolerate an operation. Uh, Surgery is really the only definitive treatment for primary hyperparathyroidism, and in the hands of experienced parathyroid surgeons, the cure rate is quite high. So let's talk a little more about who should get a parathyroidectomy. So the guidelines, the NIH guidelines for parathyroidectomy, and I should mention this is for for an asymptomatic patient, um, includes a serum calcium of one milligram per deciliter above normal. The renal criteria include a creatinine clearance of less than 60, a 24-hour urine of greater than uh, 500, and presence of, or I should say, presence of kidney stones. Another indication for a parathyroidectomy is bone involvement, so a T-score of less than 2.5 at either the lumbar spine, femoral neck, or distal one-third of the radius. And it's important if you're ordering a DEXA scan to ask for uh, evaluation at the distal one-third of the radius because this isn't routinely performed at all institutions. Another thing that's important to assess for are vertebral fractures. And so if any of these criteria are present, then those patients should automatically get a parathyroidectomy. In addition to that, if the patient is less than 50 years old, this patient should automatically get a parathyroidectomy regardless of symptoms. But really, these guidelines ignore patients with subjective symptoms... And they ignore all patients that are over 50 and those with mild disease. So I want to go through some of these data because 90% of patients of what we call asymptomatic patients are actually likely to have pretty significant subjective symptoms that are related to primary hyperparathyroidism. So I'm going to now talk about some symptomatic improvement after parathyroidectomy. So let's talk about a 60-year-old woman with quote-unquote asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism. So that patient may have no kidney stones or fractures, but has a whole host of other subjective symptoms. Um, Her labs show a slightly elevated calcium and PTH, um, but otherwise no major abnormalities, and she doesn't meet NIH criteria for, for a parathyroidectomy. So as one of the founders of endocrine surgery put it, primary hyperparathyroidism is like premature aging. The symptoms are what you expect to happen with older age, it just happens sooner than you think. So let's look at some of the symptoms that patients have with primary hyperparathyroidism. This study showed that pretty much every patient had some type of symptom and there were 17 patients in half of, uh, 17 symptoms in half of the patients that had primary hyperparathyroidism. So really, no patient in this entire cohort was truly asymptomatic. Um, but does calcium level predict symptoms? So if this really addresses, well, should we be basing parathyroidectomy on our calcium level? And the answer quickly is no. So if we look at patients that had a high calcium level of greater than or equal to 11.2, the only, in, the only difference and the only improvement they had after parathyroidectomy compared to a patient uh, with a lower calcium was kidney stones. There was no difference in most other symptoms and there was an increase actually in symptoms of bone and joint pain, depression and constipation when patients actually had a lower calcium. So hypercalcemia does not seem to predict symptoms related to primary hyperparathyroidism. <clears throat> so. Do patients who meet NIH guidelines, though, in general, not just high calcium, do they have improvements in their symptoms that are better than patients that don't meet NIH criteria uh, after having a parathyroidectomy? So when, when uh, there was a study that looked at this and compared patients that had that either met NIH criteria or did not meet NIH criteria, and what they found was that for all of the symptoms that I have listed here, fatigue, muscle aches, back pain, weakness, polydipsia, constipation, dyspepsia, depression, memory loss and nausea, None of there was no difference in terms of whether these patients had improvement uh, regardless of whether they met NIH criteria or not. And what's even more interesting is that of all of these patients, 50% of them had improvement in 10 symptoms. So that's quite a bit. Um, the Next thing that I want to bring your attention to is quality of life. Does parathyroidectomy improve quality of life? Um, So this is a study that looked at a quality of life assessment um, using a survey that measured 36 different aspects of quality of life that focused on the physical component and the mental component. And this study showed that already at six months, there was a significant improvement in mental health for patients that underwent parathyroidectomy compared to those patients that underwent observation. Um, At 12 months, this improved even more such that patients had an improvement in quality of life of mental health, bodily pain, physical role function, and general health. So pretty significant improvements in quality of life for patients that underwent parathyroidectomy compared to observation. Now this sounds like this is just too good to be true. So another study actually compared a thyroidectomy versus parathyroidectomy in order to see if this was just a placebo effect potentially related to surgery. And all of these symptoms that are listed on the left all improved only with parathyroidectomy. The only symptoms that had no difference between thyroidectomy and parathyroidectomy were constipation and dyspepsia. So this really suggests that surgery, that parathyroid surgery was not a placebo effect but really led to improvements in a lot of the symptoms that are associated with parathyroidectomy. So now I'm going to go over some bone disease improvement after parathyroidectomy. Um, so we already know that, that parathyroidectomy leads to improved bone mineral density in osteoporotic patients, so you can see here that um, observation led to a decrease in bone mineral density of 2%, um, whereas parathyroidectomy, on the other hand, led to an increase at 5% in the lumbar spine and 2% in the total hip. And this we kind of already have an idea of. But what about patients that don't have osteoporosis? And the same is true for these patients that don't have osteoporosis. So over time, their bone mineral density decrease, decreases by about 1% to or 1.5%, Um, if they are undergoing observation, but they have an increase of 3.5% in their baseline bone mineral density if they undergo parathyroidectomy. Does this also improve the risk of fractures? And the answer is yes. So if patients undergo a parathyroidectomy, the risk of fractures is significantly better than if they undergo observation. So at 10 years, 41% 41% of patients with para, uh, that have observation have fractures, whereas this decreases to 27% when they undergo parathyroidectomy. The fracture risk is also lowest after the patients undergo parathyroidectomy. So first, I want to bring your attention to the middle, uh, the middle portion of this graph of this table here. Observation. So hip fractures um, have a baseline uh, of of um, of occurrences and this occurrence actually increases with bisphosphonate treatment so it goes up um, by, by about six uh, uh, incident the incidence goes up by about 6, 14, or 30 at 2, 5, and 10 years. On the other hand parathyroidectomy actually decreases the fracture risk compared to observation by 3, 16, and 35 events um, at 2, 5, and 10 years. So The risk, and this is, I'm showing you the data for hip fracture, but this is also true for all fractures. So overall, parathyroidectomy is associated with a decreased fracture risk, and bisphosphonates are associated with increased fracture risk. Um, So bone mineral density improves after parathyroidectomy, and the fracture risk improves as well, but bisphosphonates worsen fracture risk, interestingly. Now what about other types of benefits beyond bone mineral density? So if we look at kidney stones, we can see that the incidence rate of kidney stones before parathyroidectomy is 40%, but it drops to to 17% after parathyroidectomy, so significant improvement in reduction of kidney stones after parathyroidectomy. In addition, if we look at overall mortality, we see that observation uh, really has an increased risk of mortality compared to parathyroidectomy. this is 69% risk of mortality at, with uh, observation, um, and this, the survival improves to 63% if patients undergo a parathyroidectomy. The hazard ratio for this is 1.54 with observation. So that's similar to untreated hypertension. So if you're thinking about treating your patients with um, hypertension, then you should also be thinking about treating your patients with primary hyperparathyroidism as well. So then what I've uh, shown you with this last portion is that kidney stones is, uh, risk of kidney stones is reduced after parathyroidectomy, and the risk, I haven't shown you the data for this because of lack of time, but there's also a decrease in atherosclerotic cardiovascular d- disease as well as MIs after parathyroidectomy, and this overall probably translates into an improvement in survival as well. Um, The other thing that's really important to note is that the disease usually progresses in most patients with hyperparathyroidism to the point where there's new end organ damage in about 30% of patients, and for existing and new end organ damage, that's in the majority of patients. So most patients, if they don't meet criteria for a parathyroidectomy now, they will in five years. The other thing that's important to note is that parathyroidectomy is actually cost effective as well. Um, So the threshold life expectancy for cost effectiveness is three years for parathyroidectomy. Um, so you may think, well, isn't surgery risky? So first of all, let's talk a little bit about surgery. The decision to operate is not based on labs, and so because of that, you really don't need imaging for, sur- uh, you don't need to have positive imaging for surgery, and we actually expect it to be negative in 20 to 30% of patients, but it can guide the surgical plan. And the goals of surgery are to distinguish between an adenoma and multi-gland disease and to clear the neck at the first operation. The two options are a focused parathyroidectomy or a a four-gland exploration. For the focused parathyroidectomy, we want to localize the parathyroid gland, and then we want to draw intraoperative PTH levels to confirm a cure because the half-life is four minutes. The advantages of doing a focused parathyroidectomy is that we can use a small incision size. The operation is shorter. Um, we We can do this as an outpatient, and there tends to be less transient hypocalcemia as well. Um, But in order to do this, we really need localization, which can be done by ultrasound, cestamiby, or 4-DCT, which you see here. But what if all of this is negative? Well, that patient can still have a four-gland exploration where we look at all four parathyroid glands and we resect only abnormal glands. Or if all four glands are abnormal, then we may resect three and a little bit of the fourth gland. Um, And with either operation, there's a pretty high success rate when this is performed by an experienced parathyroid surgeon. And even the 4 gland exploration can often be done as an outpatient. Um, The risks in general are pretty low, so the failure to cure is 1% to 5%. Most patients will have some uh, transient hypocalcemia, but this is alleviated with calcium supplementation. Less than 1% of patients are going to have a hematoma or injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve or wound infection. And specifically in elderly patients, the risk is 5%, but this is primarily related to transient hypocalcemia. So the risk of cardiovascular complications or recurrent laryngeal nerve injury is less than 1 in 1,000. So for this 60-year-old patient with asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism, she underwent a parathyroidectomy, had resection of her parathyroid adenoma, Her PTH dropped from 200 to 16, and she was discharged the same day of surgery, and she noted improved recall of her memory, she can fall asleep faster, Uh, she doesn't have to search for words anymore, and she can feel like she can walk up the stairs without pain, and she just feels like she has better quality of life as well. So to summarize this portion of the talk, Primary hyperparathyroidism is common, most patients are symptomatic, and a parathyroidectomy can improve quality of life, symptoms, bone mineral density, and fractures, as well as overall mortality, and the complication rates for parathyroidectomy are low. So a lot of patients will often benefit from parathyroidectomy.
1: And so with that, I'd like to conclude my talk. Wow, thank you so much, Priya. That was wonderful. Now, I know we didn't have time to go into depth with all of the different types of cancers, but... What's the prognosis like for some of the thyroid cancers? Is it usually pretty good? Yeah, so there are four different types of thyroid cancer. The most common are papillary thyroid
2: cancer and follicular thyroid cancer. And the prognosis for those are quite good. So most patients have a very similar survival, even if they didn't have that thyroid cancer, as long as the thyroid cancers are managed well. On the other hand, medullary thyroid cancer and anaplastic thyroid cancer, which I didn't have a chance to get to today, the The survival for that is a little bit lower. Um, however, we're really improving treatments for that, literally on a monthly basis. So I think we're hopefully going to have improved survival for these in the near future too.
1: That's really good to hear. It's great to see all the new advancements. Now, um, I, I feel like I see vitamin deficiency, vitamin D deficiency in almost all of my patients, especially in wintertime here in Ohio. Does that muddy the picture for diagnosing hyperparathyroidism? That's a really good question. So it can be a
2: bit more challenging to diagnose primary hyperparathyroidism when there is vitamin D deficiency. So for this, I usually like to try to replete the vitamin D level and recheck the labs. And then if you're still not sure, you can also consider getting the 24-hour urine study as
1: well. Okay. And then if a patient has just a single elevated calcium, but it's normal on recheck, you know, a lot of times we're just doing routine labs and we might see something abnormal, should we be having our alarm bells raised for primary hyperparathyroidism?
2: Yes, I think definitely should, especially in patients that have osteoporosis or kidney stones, it's very important to check in those patients. And so if you're ever not sure, I think getting the full set of labs of a calcium, a vitamin D, and a PTH level and creatinine to make sure that the patient has normal creatinine function, that can really help clarify the picture because even with a normal calcium, if the patient has an elevated PTH, they still may have primary hyperparathyroidism.
1: Okay, and I think it was super interesting to hear about your discussion of parathyroidectomy outside of the NIH guidelines, because I definitely, those are the guidelines that I learned in medical school and residency um, is there an age cutoff that you would use for surgery, or um, or? Can it really be offered to anyone now? Great question. So I think so. I have routinely
2: operated on 90 year old patients, and they tend to actually do very well after surgery. Um, I think the most important thing in terms of an age cutoff is really the life expectancy. So if the life expectancy is more than three years, then I think and the patient can tolerate a surgery, I think it's very reasonable to consider surgery for those patients.
1: Okay, awesome. And then speaking of surgery, are Most surgeons adopting these new recommendations for kind of more inclusive surgery um, and not just surgeons but endocrinologists or should us as primary care doctors be referring our um, primary hyperparathyroid patients to surgeons directly this is a very
2: interesting question so i think especially in the parathyroid surgery community surgeons are really moving towards operating on patients because we see such benefits after parathyroidectomy from Uh, with the symptoms that patients have. And so I think this is slowly translating to other specialties. So now I'm starting to get more referrals from endocrinologists uh, that for patients that have subjective symptoms and that don't necessarily meet NIH guidelines. But I don't think this is pervasive throughout. So I think it's very reasonable for a primary care physician to send a patient directly to a surgeon if that patient has subjective symptoms and is interested in a surgery.
1: Okay, and now um, let's say we didn't send them early enough, and the patient, as you said, you know, after progression, after a few years, if you then do surgery after you're already seeing some signs of end organ damage, like a decrease in their crea- or increase in their creatinine, decrease in their GFR, is there is parathyroidectomy still going to be able to help reverse any of that is, or is it really just trying to prevent further progression? Yeah, so that's an interesting question.
2: So definitely for bone mineral density, it, it without a doubt leads to improvement in uh, the bone mineral density and the fracture risk as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for the GFR, uh, it can prevent worsening. It doesn't always translate into an improvement um, of the GFR, but it definitely prevents worsening of the GFR.
1: Okay. Thanks, Priya, that was so helpful. I can already think of at least one patient that I might be sending your way. I'd be happy to see them. (laughs) Perfect. We're gonna finish up today's program with a final
2: key point, Priya. So for the key point, I think it's really important to recognize patients that have thyroid nodules and primary hyperparathyroidism, because these are often undertreated. Um, I think the most important thing for patients with thyroid nodules is to get an ultrasound so you can determine the next steps in management. And for primary hyperparathyroidism, it's really critical to understand if those patients have subjective symptoms, even if they don't meet the NIH criteria for asymptomatic patients, so that we can consider a parathyroidectomy.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to get your CME credit and ABIM MOC points for watching by logging onto our website, ccme.osu.edu. Next week, we're off for Thanksgiving, but then we'll be back in December with a webcast on contraception. Have a happy Thanksgiving. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.